Hey, good morning, everyone. Can we, can we just be a resilient church? Is that okay? We don't have to have perfect transitions, right? Yeah. It's all right. If you're new with us, uh, my name is Levi. I serve as the campus pastor here in Greece, and today I get to have the honor and privilege to preach today. If you're joining us from home or from one of our four other locations, so glad that you are here. I'm glad that I'm here. Today we are in week six of our seven-week series called Seven Great Ways to Ruin Your Life. Seven Great Ways to Ruin Your Life. We've been going through this series, going through seven different categories of sin. If left unchecked and unnoticed in our life, they can ruin our life. And today, we get something easy to talk about, really easy. Thank you, Pastor Jeremy, for giving me such an easy sermon. We are talking about the lure of lust, the lure of lust. Now, I'm not a fisherman, but uh, I know what this is. We have a lot of great fishermen in our church and in all of our campuses, and uh, I borrowed some of these to illustrate a point. See, the lure is made to look like a real fish. It's made to act and move like a real fish. It's made to trick a fish into thinking that this is what it needs the most, like the real thing. And not only will this lure not satisfy the fish, it will become hooked, and it will be carried away from the thing that will satisfy it most. Lust is a lure. It's disguised as the thing that we need the most. A loving, intimate relationship where we are fully known inside and out and fully loved unconditionally. And yet, not only will lust not satisfy us, it will actually get us hooked and it will carry us away from the one who will satisfy us the most. Lust is a lure. Today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. You can look at that if you'd like. Turn there if you'd like. Either watch it on the screen or in your Bibles. Matthew chapter 5. Today we're going to be looking at what the lure of lust is, what the different types of lures there are, why the lure is so deadly, and lastly, how do we fight this thing called lust? Before we jump into the text here, I just want to say that um, this is a very sensitive topic. It's a very personal topic. It's a very challenging topic to talk about, to preach about, to think about. And so I just want you to know that in the midst of a very heavy, serious topic, um, there's grace. There's grace. There's an invitation of grace for everyone here today. So let's jump into the text. Matthew 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So here we have Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. And he's right. They have heard it said over and over and over again for generation to generation to generation not only was it in the giving of all the law, but it made the top ten. It was in the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. It was actually something that they took very seriously, right? So meaning, don't cheat on your spouse. Don't have sex with someone who's not your spouse. Don't sleep with someone who's not your spouse. It's very plain, very straightforward. And they took it very seriously. In fact, it was considered to be a capital offense. 
This is what Deuteronomy 22.22 says. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. So adultery, capital offense, very serious business. They took this thing very, very seriously. So that's what they've known. That's what they've heard. Jesus comes along and he says, but I say to you, meaning what you've heard before is good, but let me take it a step further. And he says, if you look at a woman, even if you just look at a woman with lustful intent, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So he's saying that there's something that happens in your mind and in your heart long before adultery happens. And what he says is, this is just as serious. I want you to pay attention. You might think it's only about what happens on the outside, but I'm here to tell you that it's not just about your actions, but it's about your motives and your heart and your thoughts and your mind. The word that Jesus uses here is lustful intent. But the Bible wasn't written in English. It was written in Hebrew and Greek. And so the Greek word is epithemeo. Epithemeo, which means a strong desire. A strong desire. Something that happens inside of you. A strong desire. And in this context, when we have a strong desire for another person, it's a, sorry, a sexual desire. I need to get a drink of water. I'm sorry, guys. It's a sexual desire. Now, don't misunderstand me. What Jesus is saying is not that all sex is bad and all sexual desire is bad. No, sex is a good gift from a good God. Anyone? Amen? Right. Yeah, it's a good thing, right? So the desire for sex is a good gift from God, but it's also a very powerful gift. It's a very strong gift. Sex was designed for a loving Committed, covenantal relationship between a husband and a wife, known as marriage. And it's the only container that can really fit the great power of sex. So sex is a good gift, but when that good gift and that desire for sex gets distorted, it becomes lust. This is what Timothy Keller says about lust. He says, lust is love turned in on us. So it might start out as love, it actually gets turned, and it gets twisted, and it gets distorted back towards yourself. Lust is a distorted desire. It's a distorted desire. See, here's the difference between love and lust. Love, you might, you might know this from the 1 Corinthians 13 chapter, right? The, the marriage chapter, the love chapter. Anyone ever heard of that one, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And I love this. It does not insist on its own way. It does not insist on its own way. Well, lust is the opposite. Lust always insists on its own way way. Lust, with lust, you're the captain of the ship. You are the author of the story. You are the one in ultimate control. So, lust always insists on its own way. If you're a young person here today and you're wondering, does he love me? Does she love me? Uh, just a little side note, 
for you? Does that person always insist on their own way? Just know that that is not love. That is lust. So lust is a distorted desire, a distorted desire. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that's so tricky about lust is that it's personal. It's internal. You can't always see it from the outside. It's in your mind. It's in your heart. It's in your imagination. And that's one of the things that makes lust so deadly. It's much like carbon monoxide. You can't see it. You can't smell it, but as it fills the room, it's slowly killing you. So, there are some different types of lures. Every good fisherman knows that you need different types of lures, right? Actually, Todd, the guy, thank you, Todd, for these lures. Like I said, I'm not a fisherman, but I borrowed these. Todd said this the other night when I picked these up. He said, the devil is like a good fisherman. He just uses a different lure until he gets you to bite, right? There's different types of lures. The first one, I, I just want to talk just a few. Um, these are just a few practical ones that we come across in our culture. The first one is pornography. Pornography. It's a nice shiny one. It looks really good, right? So sexually explicit images and videos either in print or on the web. This one is a tough one, guys. I just want to say, this one is a really challenging one, and the reason it's so challenging is because the accessibility has gone way, way up. You can get it anytime, any day that you want. It's so incredibly common. This is a very challenging one, pornography. Secondly, might not come in form of pornography, but maybe it's like romantic fiction or fantasy, right, where... Uh, This type of lure can come from books or movies or TV shows or stories where there's an escape from reality into a land of make-believe, into a land of fantasy and fiction where the author paints the picture of a perfect person. And lastly, because I don't think Jesus had in mind pornography or um, sexual fantasy or romantic fiction, I think it was personal relationships. It was someone that you knew, someone that you met, someone that you saw, right? Could be a coworker, could be a neighbor, someone who works at the grocery store, could be anyone. You see something that you like, you take a second look, and that second look turns into a stare, and before you know it, your mind is wandering to places that it shouldn't. Or maybe it's desiring another person's spouse. That's a really tough one. Maybe their spouse takes care of their body better than your spouse. Maybe their spouse compliments their spouse more than you get compliments from your spouse. Maybe their spouse knows how to clean the dishes and take out the trash and do the laundry. And their spouse knows how to do so much more than your spouse. And so it breeds a sense of discontentment. And finally, you have a distorted desire. So, what makes these lures so alluring, right? Why, why, are, why are these things so common? Well, I think one of the reasons that these lures are so alluring is because they're easier, right? You, you don't need to do the work of a relationship, right? When it's accessible either on your phone or on the computer or in a movie or in a book or in your mind, 
you don't have to do the work of the relationship. You don't have to listen. You don't have to date someone. You don't have to romance someone and bring home flowers and take out the garbage and do all, like, you don't have to do any of that. It's quick, it's easy, accessible. And secondly, you don't need to get vulnerable, right? You don't need to put yourself out there and trust someone else with your life. I think lust is a lot safer, right? So why is the lure so deadly? If, if it's so common, what makes it so bad? Is, is a second look really that bad? Is, is pornography really that bad? Is lust really that bad? Could you imagine a fish out in the middle of a lake, right? And the bait just gets dropped right in front of them. And they look at it for a minute and they, they can tell that something's a little off. But then they say to themselves, oh well, what's the worst that could happen? Right? Oh well, what's the worst that could happen? Well, let's continue on in the text. Jesus continues in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So Jesus is using some very, very strong language to illustrate where lust leads. Lust is always attached to a line. It always leads somewhere. Lust is not just something you do or something that you think. It is a path that you're on. And what Jesus is saying is that path leads to hell. That path leads to destruction. That path leads to somewhere where you don't want to go. Now, when he says cut off your hand or gouge out your eye, he's not literally saying to mutilate yourself and to cut off your arm. And he's, what he's saying is, you need to take this seriously. You need to take it seriously. He's using hyperbole, like really extreme language. Not to illustrate to literally cut off your hand, but he's saying you need to take some extreme measures in your life to avoid this sin because where it leads you is a place that you don't want to go. The lure of lust is always connected to a hook and a line. And at the end of the day, it will sink you. It will. So, again, why is the lure so deadly? Let's, let's just look at this practically, okay? Lust robs you of contentment. It robs you of contentment, whether in your spouse or your future spouse or your relationship with the Lord. If your desire is for an image or a plot line that's disconnected from the work of an actual relationship you set yourself up for unrealistic expectations. So, young men, if you're not married yet, if you think that marriage is just going to be, your, your wife's going to be always dialed up with makeup on 24-7, 365, or hair's always going to be done, and every day's going to be like Valentine's Day, you might be disappointed. 
And young women, young ladies, if you envision your marriage to be like the plot line of a Nicholas Sparks novel, be careful. You might be setting yourself up for some discontentment. Because when we compare the real thing to a fantasy, it just doesn't really measure up. It just can't really, it's, it's, it's just a little more shiny, right? Lust is a little more shiny than the real thing. Secondly, lust lowers your ability to have a real relationship. It lowers your ability to have a real relationship. So picture a fish out in the middle of the water, swimming along, and the bait gets dropped again, right? Now, I'm not a fish, and I'm not a fisherman, but I have to assume that it's a lot easier for them to just take the bait than to go look for some more food. Don't you think? Don't you think it's just a little bit easier, right? Lust does the same thing. Lust makes us really bad at doing relationship well. It makes us really bad at listening well and communicating and sharing our feelings. It makes us really bad at romance. It makes us really bad at being attentive to someone else's needs because the only needs that you're concerned about with lust are your own. So it affects your relationships, whether future or current. And lastly, lust is never fully satisfied. It's never fully satisfied. Remember, lust always has a line attached. This is how James 1, 14 and 15 puts it. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown gives birth to death. James is saying that your desires, those, those distorted desires, will drag you away. Doesn't that sound a lot like a line and a hook? It goes from desire to sin to death. It's a path that we're on. It's a natural progression. I would say, you know, when it comes to things like pornography and Lust, a lot of people report that it's not just that they use it, it's that they're addicted to it. It will hook you and it will take you to places that you don't want to go. It's one thing to have a desire, but it's another thing entirely when that desire has you. So, how do we fight how do we fight this lure of lust? I want to give you four just really applicable things, really practical things. The first one is this. Be watchful. Be watchful. We have to be, we have to be aware of our surroundings. We have to know what environments will trip us up the most. What environments are we most vulnerable to attack? Right? We have to be aware of the environments that we're in. There's an old proverb that goes like this. An older fish is swinging, swimming by, and he sees two younger fish. And the older fish says to the two younger fish, he says, Hey, boys, how's the water? And the two younger fish are kind of confused, but they swim on nonetheless. 
And one of the younger fish looks at the other and he stops and he says, what the heck is water? We have to be aware of our surroundings. We have to be aware of the environments that we're in. This is what 1 Peter 5.8 says. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We need to be aware that we have an adversary who's prowling around under the radar, trying to destroy everything we know and love. We have to be, in, we have to be mindful of those vulnerable environments. So maybe for you, it's being home alone. When no one else is around. Maybe for others, it's when you're lonely or you're, it's late at night or you're hungry, you're tired. Maybe it's when you're on vacation. It could be a lot of different environments. We have to know the environments that will trip us up the most and be attentive. Secondly, we want to be distant. Be distant. 1 Corinthians uh, 6.18 says this, says, flee sexual immorality. Flee it, right? Like, this is one of the only sins where the Bible tells us don't, don't like, try to fight it, but you got to flee, right? So the irony here is the way to fight is to run away. The way, to, the way to, to fight it is to be distant from it. This is what Martin Luther said. He said, don't sit next to the fire if your head is made of butter, right? The fire's not the problem. It's the fact that your head's made of butter and you're sitting too close to the fire, Right? So we need to develop some boundaries in our lives that will help guard us against this lure of lust. I want to share just one boundary that I have in place. You don't have to adopt my boundaries, but have some boundaries. This is one. I, I don't ride in the car alone with another woman who's not my wife. I don't. It's not always the most convenient thing, but that's one of my boundaries. You don't have to have my boundaries, but you have to have some boundaries on your life to keep you distant. The third thing is be accountable. Be accountable. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. It says, if you want to be healed... If you want freedom, you want healing from this, then you need to bring what is in darkness, bring it to light and confess it to people who you trust and whom you love and who love you. I will say this, you know, when I was younger, when I was in high school and early on in college, I was, I was hooked on the lure of lust and I struggled with pornography. And the worst part about it was that I was in the church and I was leading worship at the time and I was involved in youth ministry and then I was going off to Bible college nonetheless and I felt like I was the only one who dealt with this. I felt like I was the only one in the church that was trying to worship, trying to follow the Lord and yet I had this thing nagging on the inside. And then my sophomore year, I met some guys who loved me and loved the Lord, and I was able to be honest with them, transparent with them, and trust them. And I 
confessed my sin to them. And you know what I realized? I realized, one, that I was not alone in this. Not only was I not alone, but these guys helped me stay accountable. They asked me the tough questions. They asked me good questions. And they loved me and they embraced me. They didn't judge me, but they told me the truth. We need people in our lives that will love you, that will embrace you. They won't condemn you, but they will tell you the truth. So be accountable. Be watchful. Be distant. Be accountable. And here's the fourth one, and this is the most important one. Be close. Be close. Because here's the reality. The first three things that I mentioned, being watchful, being distant, being accountable, they're just guardrails. <laughs> they're just guardrails. They'll, they'll just try to keep you on the right path. But at the end of the day, you can always cheat them. All right, you can always lie to an accountability partner. You can always lie to yourself about the environments that trip you up. And whatever boundaries you put in place, you can always compromise on them. These are exterior solutions. And the problem is this sin is not an exterior sin. It's on the inside. So, what's the solution? We need to be close to the Lord. We need to be close to God, a close, intimate relationship. It's what we were designed for. We were designed to be fully known and fully loved inside and out. And you know the only one who can really do that? It's God. God, God knows you inside and out. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows your thoughts. He knows what you're going to say before you say it. He knows everything about you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And he loves you unconditionally. And there's nothing you could do for him to ever love you less. This distorted desire that we have, it looks for the shiny lure of lust but the real way that we fight it is we have to desire something even more beautiful. We have to desire something greater. We need to be, we need to know the real thing. See, the fish that doesn't get hooked is the one that knows the difference between the lure and the real thing. So be close to God, delight yourself in God. Let him satisfy your soul. Spend time with God. You know, every relationship requires time. If you're married, you know this, right? If you're dating, you know this. Every relationship requires time. Spend time with the Lord. Spend time getting to know the real thing. Take the time that your relationship requires. Be close to God. Secondly, be close, if you're married, be close to your spouse, Delight yourself in your spouse. Take the time with your spouse. Date your spouse. Listen to your spouse. Share with your spouse. Be honest with your spouse. And ultimately, when we're satisfied in our marriage and we're satisfied in our walk with the Lord, we're not going to look for love in other places. So as we, as we wrap up, I know that this is not an easy thing to talk about. It's not an easy thing to preach about. It's not even an easy thing to listen to. 
I get that. Because at the end of the day, no one really wants to admit that they've been chewing on a lure, being dragged around to places that they don't want to go. We don't want to think about it because it's internal and it's private and it's under the radar. But the reality is, if left unchecked and unnoticed in our lives, it will ruin our lives. So church, I want to invite you. I don't want to judge you. I don't want to heap condemnation on you by any means. I want to invite you into something greater. I want to invite you to spit out the lure, to cut the line, and to feed on something that will ultimately satisfy your soul. And that's a relationship with Jesus. It's a relationship. The, the, the creator of the universe wants a relationship with you. Every one of us. The problem is, whether it be lust or greed or pride or envy or anger or sloth or gluttony or whatever sin we have in our life, those things separate us from God. And not only do they separate us from God, but they ruin our lives and they lead to death, hell, destruction. We were designed to have this close, intimate, personal relationship with God, and yet our sin separates us. That's the bad news. The good news is this, that God did something about it. He sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life without any of those sins. And he died the death that we were supposed to die. The death that we deserved for our sin. And if we would put our faith and our trust in Jesus, his righteousness, his goodness, his perfect life would be credited to our account as if we had never done anything wrong. Isn't that good news, church? So maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here and you just thought, this is such a weird Sunday to come to church for the first time. <laughs> maybe you're thinking, maybe something's clicking with me. Maybe there's something inside me that's not quite right. Maybe there is some sin in my life that needs to be dealt with and ultimately forgiven. I want you to know that today you can be forgiven. And you can have a relationship with God that truly satisfies the longing of your soul. So this morning, at all of our campuses, I want to lead you in a prayer. And it's a prayer of faith, of simple belief. And it's not the prayer that actually saves you or gives you that eternal life with God, but it's the faith behind the prayer. So if, if that's you today, I want to encourage you to pray this prayer with me. So with everyone's heads bowed and eyes closed, would you pray this? Lord, I confess that I am a sinner. And I know that my sin separates me from you. Lord, I desire to have a relationship with you. God, I thank you for your unfailing love, unconditional love, that you know me inside and out and love me so much. 
Lord, I believe that you sent your son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life and died the death that I deserved. I believe that three days later he rose from the grave and now offers me eternal life with you. I put my faith and trust in you today. Come and be Lord of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, first of all, I celebrate with you and I welcome you into the family. And we would love, absolutely love the opportunity to follow up with you and answer any questions that you might have. And the way that we do that is through the connection card in the seat pocket in front of you. If you would do me a favor, do us all a favor, and and just put your name on that, your contact info. And on the back of that card is a little box in the top left corner that says, I want to become a Christian for the first time today. It's actually the most important box on that card. And we celebrate every time we see that box checked. But we know that we also want to follow up with you. And we want to encourage you. And we want to answer any questions that you might have. So if you would fill that card out, check that box, and a campus pastor at all of our campuses would be in touch with you. At the end of the service, just pop it in a basket or a box on your way out of the service. Look, church, I want to remind you one more time. Cut the line. Spit out the lure and feed on something greater. We're going to have the worship teams at all of our locations come on up as we close in prayer. Lord, we thank you that you are all satisfying and all fulfilling. And Lord, I pray that you would transform the desires of our heart to not look for the shiny lures of lust, but God, to ultimately feed on you and your presence. Lord, I pray. I pray for freedom. I pray for healing, Lord, for anyone who is trapped and on the hook for this. God, that they would find accountability, that they would find freedom and awareness, Lord that they would turn ultimately to you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.